Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guests today are Professor Sara Camisaro, who is Assistant Professor of Public Policy at Duke University, and Professor Emily Pattigian, who is Assistant Professor of Public Policy at Penn State University. Welcome, Sarah and Emily. Hi, thank you so much Hi. for having us. Thanks for yeah. having us. So I want to start with, you had a couple of uh, very recent papers, uh, and one of them just came out this year, are power plant exposures a breath of fresh air, local air quality, and school absences? Uh, you say we study the effects of three large, nearly simultaneous coal-fired power plant closures on school absences in Chicago. We find that the closures resulted in a 7% reduction in absenteeism in, nearly, in nearby schools relative to, the, relative to those uh, further away from um, the closure. So uh, before we get to the details of this, I just want to mention, Sarah and Emily, I spent quite a bit of time in the Chicago area, both on the north side and south side. Uh, I have no um, conflict of interest. I used to be in the power plant sector, uh, but mostly in the nuclear power plant. So I haven't done anything in the coal-fired uh, power plant arena. So before we get to the details of the paper, so coal-fired power plant, these are thermal uh, plants that is uh, creating electricity, right? Yes, that's correct. And so it, it, it's sort of um, curious that you had three, uh, po three power plants close, you say nearly simultaneously in the Chicago area. So it, what was the cause of that? Yeah, so... Um... The three plants that closed in Chicago, this was in 2012. Um, two of them were actually owned by the same company. They were pretty close together. The third was actually just outside of Chicago in Hammond, Indiana, which um, for those familiar with the geography is is just over the, the city border and the state border. Um, yeah. And these three plants um, were uh, sort of the subject for 
many years of litigation, um, sort of changing environmental regulation, and um, in advance of some previously announced timelines um, that the sort of parent companies that own these plants had said, like, look, we're going to close these down in the coming years or retire them. Um, the uh, Our understanding is that the um, parent company sort of accelerated this process due to just the increasing costs of uh, keeping these plants operating, um, particularly during a time period when natural gas was becoming uh, cheaper. And uh, so the the companies just sort of changed their plans somewhat abruptly um, and closed them in 2012. So they were all owned by the same company? They were owned by two companies. Um, oh, two so companies. one of the companies owned two plants and another was owned by a second company. Yeah. And um, so they are quite close to Chicago and, and that makes it sort of convenient for your study. Um, Chicago has a lot of school school kids. So So do you want to talk a bit about um, you know, sort of the scope and the size of the study? Uh, sure, I'll, <laughs> I'll keep going here. Um, so yes, uh, two of the plants were actually located in Chicago's city limits. They're um, located on the, I believe it's the south branch of the Chicago River. Um, and so uh, it is unusual, uh, at least to our knowledge in the U.S., for plants to be located inside of major cities. It's much more common for them to be located sort of more remotely or outside of cities. Um, but Chicago was sort of unique in this respect. Um, and then you have the third plant, the state line generating station that was, as I mentioned earlier, in Hammond, Indiana, you know, just outside of the city. And the, the sort of spatial uh, concentration of these three plants um, was indeed very important for our study, um, along with the fact that they happened to close right around the same time. In the paper, we say nearly simultaneously because it was within a six-month period, March to August of 2012. Um, and so that was really important um, for our study um, in that it provided this context where we could look at the effects of these closures on, you know, in, in one of our papers, we look at school absences. That's the paper you mentioned. In another, we look at emergency room visits for asthma-related conditions among young children. Um, but you're absolutely right that the um, sort of unique um, circumstances of these three plants being so close to each other and being uh, inside of or very close to a major city um, was one of the reasons um, actually that we, I guess, set out to write this paper. We don't or at least I'll say, I'll speak for myself, I don't know of other circumstances in the U.S. where there has been um, sort of a, a context like like the one that we studied. So, so Emily, so, so how many, so, so what sort of the size of the study? Um, so how many kids, how many schools did you look at? Yeah, absolutely. So, so this picks up on on Sarah's point that examining this within the context of you know a large city, the city of Chicago, was important to the design of our study because it gave us a large enough sample of elementary schools to exact uh, to examine um, the impacts of these closures. So we constrained our sample to uh, elementary schools. Um, within the kind of Chicago and Chicago adjacent areas. So we mostly looked at Chicago public schools uh, districts, but we, we have a couple of, of districts to the, the west of Chicago as well that, that fit into our sample. Um, for an overall sample of, of approximately, um, uh, I think it's, it's right around 
um, 450 school elementary schools in our sample. And we have data from these schools starting in 2000, the 2008-2009 the school year uh, and going through the 2015-2016 school year. So we have you know, several years both before these closures took place uh, and after these closures took place that, in which we follow these schools over time. So um, all of our analysis uh, for our examination of school impacts are, are at the school level. So looking at this sample of uh, approximately 450 elementary schools uh, in and around the Chicago area. Um, and, and that's our main sample size uh, for, for that paper. I'll just note that, that in our, uh, the, the other paper that Sarah alluded to, uh, in which we look at the, the impacts on emergency department visits for, for asthma, in that paper, we actually use um, zip codes in Chicago. And so that's a, a somewhat smaller sample size uh, and a, a slightly different kind of empirical setup. Um, yeah. but, but overall, that's, that's the sample that we use in these studies. Yeah, I mean, this is an amazing data uh, sample, 450 schools. Um, it's a large data set, uh, but longitudinally, what, what, what was the horizon that you, what was the time frame that you're looking at? Yeah, so we're looking at the period uh, starting with the 2008-2009 school year uh, and and ending with the 2015-2016 school year. Uh, so that gives us, you know, a, a couple of years before that 2012 uh, uh, year where where these closures took place, and then a few years after to actually measure, you know, both the overall impact of these closures uh, right around the time in which they closed, but also the the dynamic effects of of what these reductions in pollution from these coal-fired power plants meant, you know, both right after uh, the, the closures, but in the, the years following as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know a lot about this, Emily. No, I was just thinking that, so so you, you're mentioning absenteeism, and there is always a correlation causation issue. So uh, any, any other factors that uh, that might have affected this in any way? Well, so what we do in our empirical setup is to, to try to disentangle uh, kind of the impact on schools that we expect to be more impacted uh, versus less impacted. And so what we do is we use a difference in difference specification to examine the impact of these closures um, you know, on schools that are uh, within a small radius, within a 10 kilometer radius of the the closed uh, plants. And we compare those to, to schools that are located outside of that 10 kilometer radius. Uh, and, and then we look at, at changes both, you know, before and after the closures. And so that helps to, to address some of the concerns about, uh, you know, the, the, um, the causality versus, versus correlation question. Um, and, and it helps to rule out some of these, you know, potential, uh, you know, other impacts or other changes that could have taken place during this time. And the reason that this helps to rule some of those pieces out uh, is because there would have to be, you know, other policies or other industrial changes or other pollution related changes that kind of affected schools in the same spatial and temporal manner that our coal-fired power plant closures did. Um, and so by using that difference in difference uh, uh, specification, we, we can kind of uh, try to avoid some of those additional challenges that we would see, you know, without having this longitudinal data. Yeah. 
And Sarah, so, so you're mentioning absenteeism here, and presumably absenteeism is related to uh, pollution-driven uh, issues. Uh, but do, do we have any, uh, any sort of robust data that shows that? Yeah, so um, we are, uh, one of the stories that we're trying to tell in this paper is that the absences that are school absences that are decreasing following the plant closures is actually coming through at least partially improvements in children's health. So in the um, our power plant closures, a breath of fresh air paper, the one that's actually about school absences, we provide some supporting evidence where we empirically investigate the effects of these plant closures on uh, emergency room visits for asthma-related conditions among school-age children. Yeah. Um, we do a similar thing in our other paper where we're looking at uh, emergency room visits uh, for asthma-related conditions among young children. And in both cases, we find uh, pretty substantial decreases in rates of emergency room visits. And so hmm. we're, we're you know, sort of empirically documenting that accompanying this decrease in absences are these two notable, you know, for separate age groups, school-age children versus young children, um, but for both of these age groups, we see pretty substantial declines in these ED visits. And so that is our sort of empirical contribution to say that we think that underlying these reductions in school absences are improvements in children's health. It's, it's possibly not the entire story, but we think that at least it's consistent with this idea that the plant closures are leading to sort of better health. Yeah. Um, particularly as it relates relates to asthma, and then the last thing I'll say is we're we're citing um, evidence that you know we're not uh, necessarily the people who do this type of research, but um, literature from public health, from medicine, um, documenting um, you know sort of the correlation between air pollution exposure and you know poor health, poor respiratory, in particular health outcomes among children, um, and so we're drawing on sort of those literatures to say, hey, we think this story sort of makes sense that. These school, uh, these reductions in school absences are possibly coming through improvements in children's health. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these two papers in together. So the other paper that you have, the effect of coal-fired power plant closures on emergency department visits, as you mentioned, uh, for asthma-related conditions uh, among zero to four-year-old children in Chicago, and it's the horizon of 2009-2017. Uh, these two papers in combination uh, says a very interesting story, right? Um, and so, so in this paper, you say exposure to ambient air pollution, especially among young children, is a serious public health concern, given their ongoing physical development, smaller sizes, higher breathing rates, and activity patterns. Children children face higher ambient air pollution exposure and are more susceptible to negative effects than adults. Now, this is a phenomenon. So so you, you sort of, in some sense, I don't know if this is the right term, Sarah and Emily, lucked out because in the Chicago area, you got three plants closed and you got a bunch of data. Do, do, we, do we know if there is any such data outside the U.S.? So there certainly is uh, is both literature and data on um, these types of relationships between air pollution exposure 
um, and outcomes both for, for children, uh, for adults, and for elderly adults, um, both inside and outside the, the United States. So I actually, uh, one of the, the things that, that brought Sarah and I together for this collaboration was my work uh, in the environmental space, um, specifically looking at the relationships between air pollution exposures uh, uh, driven by forest fire activity um, and and health um, and and other kind of economic outcomes in Indonesia. Um, and so Sarah and I had been talking about some of my work, um, looking at those relationships, um, and and um, and and that led to to some of these collaborations in the United States. So uh, abroad, and particularly in low and middle income countries, um, there's uh, you know both both energy-related uh, air pollution, just, just like the one that we study in, in our paper, right? There are coal-fired power plants and brick kilns uh, and other kind of industrial-related polluters um, that, that generate pollution and that, that the research looks into. Uh, but then there are other phenomenons such as uh, kind of forest fires and particularly severe forest fire seasons as well as indoor air pollution um, and cooking technology that have all been used as ways to, to kind of measure the relationship between air pollution exposures um, and health and other uh, human capital or economic outcomes. Much of this literature uh, looks at effects on uh, very young children, on infants and children under the age of five, um, which is what we do in our paper as well. But there's also evidence that other vulnerable populations such as elderly adults, um, or, or people with uh, kind of com uh, compromised immune systems or other underlying health concerns are also, uh, you know, more impacted or more vulnerable to these exposures. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sarah, I mean, this is an important uh, piece of information for policymakers, right? So um, in a 20 trillion economy, we spend four to $4.5 trillion in healthcare. Um, and if you were to truly internalize uh, societal cause, um, we can clearly see certain technologies, certain status quo technologies are not really viable. Uh, but, but, but do you think um, the policymakers have a good grasp of what's going on? Um, oof, that's a, <laughs> not exactly sure how to answer that. I mean, I think one of the things that we wanted to demonstrate um, you know, in a, in a small way in this paper is that there are costs associated in terms of human health, um, costs associated with the way that we generate energy. And, you know, we're not the first people to say this, but, you know, this is our sort of contribution to say that, you know, like you mentioned, um, these types of activities are, are costly for human health. And I think we're beginning to have some sense, um, you know, this is a very active and, you know, uh, growing area of, of research, um, we're starting to have a sense of exactly the, the magnitudes um, of those costs. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen anything like this, Sarah Nemiri, you know, the, the shift, um, so, so the, sort of the, the comparison between fossil fuel powered energy production and non-fossil fuel powered energy production um, we have sort of the basic heuristics there. We can we can measure those things. We can look at productivity, efficiency, but I haven't seen too many things that looks at the the health cause um, of, of these things. And uh, presumably, the health costs are probably an order of magnitude higher mm -hmm. 
then sort of the incremental things that we measure. Uh, Emily, do you agree with that or what do you think? Well, so one of the things that, that I think is is kind of interesting and, and potentially unique about uh, particularly our application um, for, for looking at school absences is that we, you know, we are speaking to these kind of, you know, this, this proxy for health, right, these school absences, these kind of asthma-related impacts. Um, but we're also thinking about kind of some of these broader externality changes associated with the ways that we generate electricity. And so research like this paper, um, you know, hopefully is informative for policymakers who really do want to think through all of the different costs and benefits associated with, you know, our energy production and uh, and planned energy transitions. And so I think you're right that, you know, there there's work out there, you know, both um, from from researchers within the government, but also researchers in uh, in academic positions that that is kind of trying to examine what some of these, you know, health impacts of of air pollution look like, because, you know, often when we're doing these kind of impact evaluations of, of big pieces of policy, like the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act, uh, but particularly in the airspace, uh, you know, it is those health impacts that really generate kind of some of the biggest benefits. And so by thinking about this holistically, right, both the the kind of health related impacts, the, the potential educational related impacts, which, you know, other research shows has, you know, potentially long run uh, influences on, on potential earnings for these children. You know, those are the pieces that we need to start stringing together for policymakers to, to put together the full picture of the, the potential costs of, of different types of energy generation to make more informed uh, policy decisions for, you know, energy transitions, renewable energies, fossil fuels moving forward. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the long-term effects could be quite high. You know, it's it seems to me that it's multifactorial and exponential. So kid doesn't show up. You're looking at zero to four-year-old children here, uh, unable to show up to school uh, because of a health reason. Um, it has so many implications for society. Um, lower education leads to crime. Um, lower education leads to, you know, basically lack of productivity for a, a, a long horizon. So the net present value decline due to this policy um, is quite substantial. So. You know, I always felt that we don't really have a policy infrastructure that looks at sort of strategic costs of policy. Um, <laughs> I don't know, Sarah, you know, is that possible? I mean, I think there are uh, economists, other social scientists who are, are trying to sort of put these types of pieces together um, and trying to um, understand how, you know, early life influences that could be sort of even before you're born, but also experiences in early childhood, how all of those things are related to your long run outcomes. And I think um, other people have done sort of tremendous work trying to better understand these things. And I think of our work as, as sort of um, contributing to this overall conversation and saying, look, like, we can document that uh, you know, this policy in particular, having your school located near a coal-fired power plant, living near a coal-fired power plant, um, you know, negatively impacts you when you're young, negatively impacts your health, negatively impacts 
uh, your ability to attend school. And there are others then I think that are doing the work to connect uh, those types of things to longer run outcomes um, and to sort of the opportunities that people have through throughout their, their lifetimes. Yeah, so, so there's also sort of a, a so, so what happened when these two companies shut down these plans? Presumably they had some sort of a plan to substitute for them, right? Did they? Um, gosh, I can't exactly remember what has happened with the three sites. I think, um, I don't exactly remember. Yeah. Um, I think, Emily, at least one of the plants has other activity at it. Is that right? Yeah. So, so um, you know, some of these plants are still operating in very limited capacity um, through natural gas conversion. So, so there's mm -hmm. you know, some natural gas generation that's occurring um, at, at at least one, if not two of these sites, but it's to a kind of much lower extent than the, the coal fire power operations um, and then, of course, you know, natural gas is a, a cleaner uh, fossil fuel, although still a polluting fossil fuel. Um, and so so there was some natural gas transition. Um, you know, the the parent companies that owned these plants, um, as Sarah alluded to at the beginning of, of this conversation, did have eventual retirement plans. Um, yeah. And so there were, you know, plans in place for energy generation to continue, right? It's not like these plants went offline and all of a sudden there were big outages of electricity that occurred in these these areas. Um, rather, there there was kind of a, a plan to, to transition to other sources and, and generation from other parts of the country. Um, um, and, and the state of Illinois as well. So I think that that partially goes into it as well. Um, although, you know, just like these plants were, were retired before the, the kind of overall retirement plan had been put into to effect, um, you know, some of those transitions may have had to speed up a bit as well. So I think, you know, that's kind of the the general sense that we have from from our understanding. Um, but, you know, you raise a, an important point that, you know, it's not the case that when one plant goes offline or, or we think about these energy transitions that we don't need to think about that secondary step of, you know, what is the transition? How do we make sure that, that people still have access to the electricity that they need for their everyday lives? Yeah, yeah. So is this a Chicago phenomenon, Emily, or uh, other states are doing something similar? Uh, I know that we had a great president just a few months ago who was pushing... Um, clean coal. I don't know what that means, but um, is it a Chicago phenomenon or something that is every state is doing? So the last decade has seen substantial declines in the use of coal for energy, gen for electricity generation in the United States. Uh, so to just give you two examples um, of states that I I know, you know, a little bit more about one is one is Illinois, of course, where where Chicago is located. Uh, since 2008, there have been, you know, approximately 20 closures of coal fire power plants. Three of them, uh, or or two of them, I guess, because one was in Indiana, uh, are the plants that that we look at in this study. But this is kind of part of this overall trend uh, in the state, but also in the the broader U.S. as well. So Pennsylvania, um, where where I'm now located at 
at Penn State, um, has also seen a, a large reduction in operational coal fire power plants. Um, approximately 20 plants have closed in the last decade. Um, and, and there are large, uh, you know, energy transition plans here in Pennsylvania, thinking about transitions, um, you know, away from, from coal and, and in Pennsylvania, particularly to natural gas um, and considering other renewable energy sources as well. So, so there have been large reductions in coal as, as an electricity source in the United States in the last decade. That being said, you know, it is still an important um, electricity source. So, you know, I think about 23 to 24% of US electricity is, is generated via coal uh, currently. That's, that's down substantially uh, from a decade ago, but still not an insignificant component. Um, and, and coal is, you know, the, the most damaging, most polluting fossil fuel uh, out there. And so, you know, thinking about some of these transitions uh, is important for a, a clean energy transition, right? Uh, we see our current president kind of talking about, uh, you know, making sure that infrastructure plans and um, and other policies are aligned with our climate objectives. And so thinking about these transitions to less polluting fuels um, or, or to renewables is really an important component of that. Yeah, so so I just want to ask you, um, Sarah. So I was looking at the chart that you have uh, in one of the papers, operational coal-fired uh, plant, uh, plants and population of children aged zero to four years, and I see a big uh, block uh, at the corner of Pennsylvania and New York, and I see a big block in Chicago. Now, this is sort of counterintuitive to me from a sort of a binary political <laughs> landscape that we have. Um, it seems like New York, Pennsylvania, and, and Illinois, uh, in Chicago more specifically, are more affected by this. So uh, how, how, does, how does one explain this from a political perspective? Well, so one of the things I want to just mention about this figure is um, that you're that I think you're uh, talking about in the paper is that those blobs are big because they're population weighted. And so they're showing yeah. the locations. And so part of that is just showing that like, these are places where lots and lots of people live. So even if there's, you know, um, one plant there, these are, these are trying to show the number of zero to four year old children um, that live within 10 kilometers of, um, or sorry, who live in a zip code, uh, who's yeah. centroid or is within 10 kilometers. And so, um, I mean, the pattern I see from this figure is that, you know, there are sort of these regional patterns of where operational coal-fired power plants, this, this map might be slightly outdated because it is from 2016. As, and as Emily mentioned, um, you have, you know, sort of large numbers of retirements, um, in the, in the past, uh, 10 years, past five years. Um, mm. And so, um, but you definitely do see this regional pattern um, where a lot, at least to me, of the um, coal-fired power plants locations are concentrated in sort of the Midwest and the, the East Coast compared to looking at, say, the, the Western or Southwestern parts of the United States where um, yeah. these plants are just far, far less common. And so- Yeah, the, um, the West is completely clean. Uh, you know, California, Oregon, and Washington- is a clean slate. Um, yeah, I think there might be a few plants located there, but yeah, far fewer. Yeah. And and as you can see, the the scale of the sort of dots, if you will, on those uh, located in those states um, are are much smaller. 
indicating that those are located in, in parts of those states where there are not a lot of people nearby. Um, yeah. And so you see sort of very, very different regional patterns in the locations and then also um, sort of how close to, to populated areas these plants are. And one yeah. other thing that, that I just want to add to this discussion yeah. is, is that, you know, coal-fired power plants have been around for a long time. These plants yeah. that, that are closing in Chicago and these plants that, you know, are closing in Pennsylvania, uh, some of them have been in operation for, for a century, uh, right, or, or have been in operation since the, the late 1920s. Um, and so so there is a, a bit of infrastructural path dependence here that, that I yes. think these figures kind of show, right, places that were industrialized earlier, uh, places that were, were big hubs and needed a lot of electricity access. Those are some of the areas where some of these kind of older uh, pieces of infrastructure exist. And I think we see a little bit of that in, in the maps as well. You know, uh, uh, perhaps the next decade, we'll see lots of changes there uh, and new infrastructure investments. But, you know, these plants that, are, were, that closed down in Chicago had been operating for, for decades. Um, mm. And so it's, it's not a new technology. Yeah, that's that's a good point, Emily. You know, um, I was I was wondering um, politicians who really uh, want coal and fossil fuels in general um, seem to be sort of the in the south uh, southern part of the U.S. and at least on the surface, we don't have a lot of coal-fired plants. In the South, uh, we we have them in more what what one might call blue blue countries, uh, Pennsylvania, New York, Illinois, and that, that is sort of counterintuitive in some ways from policy perspective. Yeah, no, I I mean I I think you're right. I I think you know Sarah's point that that this is you know that it's a little bit skewed by those those population weights is is a good one, right? That that we're kind of seeing the the population impact, but that doesn't detract from from your point that there is this disconnect. Um, and and I think that's why we're starting to see you know even at the state level some of these uh, state or regional initiatives to shift away from from coal uh, as well. So for instance. The, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or REGI, is a kind of consortium of, of northern and northeastern states um, that has created a, a fairly well-functioning kind of cap-and-trade system for, mm -hmm. for reducing pollution uh, and, and pollution from coal and, and other fossil fuels in that area. And for instance, Pennsylvania is kind of currently in the process of potentially joining REGI. And so you're seeing kind of some of these sub-national, these regional arrangements, these state-level policies that are seeking to address some of these issues. And so, you know, I do think that that there could be changes uh, uh, coming in the future to what these maps might look like of impacts, um, yeah. both from a population perspective, but also from a geographical perspective. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. So we have a legacy infrastructure to, to think about sort of legacy policies and the transition uh, from legacy to the new is not easy. So I, I guess in some sense, the big, the big cities in the Midwest and the Northeast are saddled by legacy policies that we have to transition out. 
Yeah. And, you know, we see this, you know, outside of energy uh, infrastructure as well. Right. I think we might see similar trends in in transportation or or in other types of infrastructure. And I think it's something that'll be really important for, uh, you know, for for policy moving forward, thinking about the, the appropriate ways to respond to some of these infrastructure needs. Yeah. Yeah. We'll take a quick break, Sarah and Emily. When we come back, we'll talk about some of your other papers. Great. Great. Thank you. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Uh, Sarah and Emily, we were talking about... uh, coal-fired power plants closures in the Chicago area um, and how coal-powered power plant closures actually affect the health of young children. Um, We looked at absenteeism, we looked at emergency room visits and so on. It's very clear that, um, and it has been clear for many, many decades now that um, coal-powered coal uh, power plants are uh, pretty polluting uh, to the environment. I want to go into some of your other papers. Uh, Emily, you had a paper in 2019 valuing the environmental costs of local development, evidence from households in Western Nepal, in which you say environmental quality is rarely prioritized along with the development pathways of developing countries even though little is known about how individuals in the settings value uh, value intact environments. Um, so you, you conducted a survey there, a pretty large survey, 3,600 households uh, living throughout the Karnali and uh, Mahakali river basins in Western Nepal. Um, so so what, so what do you find in this survey? Yeah, so this study was actually part of kind of this larger effort to characterize water, uh, water use, water access, um, and and kind of water quality in Western Nepal uh, in these these two river basins. And one of the pieces of this project that that we were really interested in was kind of the trade-offs in potential development pathways in the region, particularly thinking about developing. Uh, you know, water use infrastructure such as, uh, you know, large uh, uh, hydroelectric dams or or kind of large diversion projects for for irrigation and agriculture. And these types of infrastructure projects uh, kind of uh, initiate trade-offs with um, environmental quality and intact local environments. Um, And, you know, as you may know, uh, Nepal is as a country that that actually has a lot of potential um, uh, economic benefits associated with intact environments, um, you know, there's a there's a lot of trekking and and navig- uh, kind of uh, rafting and other types of uh, environmental tourism um, yeah. that could be a potential uh, uh, environmental or or economic. Uh, productivity pathway as well. And so what we were kind of interested in understanding in this study 
was how local uh, populations valued um, kind of environmental conservation and mm -hmm. and intact environments and whether or not they they you know would kind of value that type of of maintenance of environmental quality over other types of development infrastructure or other types of economic um, economic pathways uh, and so what we do in this study is we we run a contingent valuation uh, uh, survey which essentially asks households, um, to, to state how much they value um, uh, kind of local environmental conservation. Um, and what we find in these areas is that, um, that there is a positive valuation for local environmental quality, hmm. that households, uh, you know, are, are willing to, uh, you know, contribute in, in the sense of this stated preference survey, contribute to land conservation and to maintain their local environments. Um, and you know we we see that there are certain household characteristics such as education that that kind of correspond with higher levels of of conser conservation attitudes, um, which which suggests that there might be some some variation in these values. Mm -hmm. um, and so so this is kind of the the overall um, the overall goal of this study was to to really try to understand some of these preferences and and demands for local environmental quality within this broader context that that there are these trade-offs for thinking about development within the region um, across sectors and across different development trajectories and that's really what we are seeking to understand yeah this is this is really interesting uh, emily so sort of the localization of the good, right? Localization of the environmental quality, yeah, then the locals can put a price on it uh, because they can directly attribute environmental quality to economics, um, tourists, and, and, and other aspects. So do, do you see some sort of an application of this idea uh, more generally? Yeah, I think the problem we have in the world today is that people can't really attribute their actions directly to some economics. Um, you know, it seems too far-fetched, it seems too nebulous, too uncertain that they don't want to take that action. Do you see some applications? Yeah, so this is certainly a challenge, and this is something that that the methods that we use in this paper, these kind of stated preference uh, type valuation, non-market valuation methods, really do try to to speak to. Um, and so, so for instance, you know, we tried to make the the context that we were asking these households to value very clear to them and and very uh, very localized, right? We wanted to understand what these households thought about uh, about natural land preservation in and around their communities. We wanted to make this something that that you know they could directly relate to and that they could think through you know how they might use locally preserved land or or what value they might really place on that. Um, and so in this context, drawing that local connection uh, uh, was really important. That being said, uh, you know, more broadly, these types of methods such as contingent valuation or other stated preference methods have been used to try to value other uh, types of non-market um, non goods 
um, within the broader kind of environmental and environmental policy space. Um, and so, so perhaps the most famous example um, is the, the use of contingent value, valuation to try to understand how, uh, or kind of the, uh, try, to, try to value the damages of the Exxon Valdez oil spill uh, yeah. that, that took place um, uh, several decades ago. And this was one of the first uh, kind of policy related applications of contingent valuation um, in which, you know, um, the, the researchers there and, and in fact, the policymakers there were trying to understand how how populations valued the, the kind of loss of environmental quality associated with a large oil spill. So we have seen um, these types of methods being used in the policy space. The important yeah. thing is kind of getting the methods, you know, uh, as as accurate as possible, because, of course, we are asking people to value things that, you know, don't exist in a market setting. And that can be quite challenging. Um, so so making sure that you're spending the time with respondents and making those contexts specific uh, and applicable enough um, really does help to to to. Um, to make sure that respondents are are actually responding to to the question you're trying to ask, and you're getting a true valuation um, out of out of that type of method. Yeah, so I find interesting, Emily, that you say that we find that households with higher levels of education exhibit higher willingness to pay. That is that is very intuitive. Mm -hmm. But you say as to male respondents, that is very counterintuitive to me. <laughs> Uh, so why, why do you think that's the case? Uh, typically, uh, you know, men are not very good in uh, in doing these types of things. So one of the things that that is important to think about, you know, in this particular context, is is the role of different household members in managing household finance. And uh -huh. so in many of our um, in many of our households that that were part of this this study. The gender norms, the social norms would dictate that that women are far less likely to, to kind of be in control or have a lot of autonomy over household financial decisions. They might be involved in decision making processes. Um, we do find some evidence of that in our survey as well, but they're less likely to, to be the, the sole decision maker. Whereas many of our male respondents are coming from households where, where men are directly related in these financial decisions uh, for the household. And so some of this is reflective of the actual context uh, in which we're, we're doing this, this um, this contingent valuation study. Um, and that's actually encouraging. Uh, you know, one of the, the concerns about stated preference type methods is that you're you're simply asking people for their valuations and, and it can be hard to, to make sure that you're getting those valuations, you know, as unbiased as possible. And yeah. so in a context where we might expect men to have more autonomy or more comfort in, in kind of dictating where the family resources might go, uh, it's encouraging to see that that you know our our results are kind of reflective of that social context, um, and it's also informative for thinking about you know how to make sure that both uh, men and women do have some of this this autonomy and do have um, the the opportunity to actually share their true preferences, right? So one thing that we might be concerned about uh, is that if women you know have have 
more limited financial autonomy in this setting that that their their valuations you know are are somewhat of an undervaluation for for yeah. environmental quality in this this context which suggests right. that our overall results would be kind of a conservative uh, uh lower bound in this case so pulling in kind of the local context the social context is really important for interpreting and understanding these results yeah yeah exactly yeah that's a good point sarah i want to go into one of your papers sure um can community crime monitoring reduce student absenteeism uh in this paper you say we study the impact of uh, on student absenteeism of a large school based community crime monitoring program that employed local community members to monitor and report crime on designated city blocks during students travel and from school um I don't know the location of this area. Is this in Hyde Park? Um, this is all over the city of Chicago. So oh, it's okay. A, it's okay. a Chicago public schools initiative called the Safe Passage Program. Okay. So, 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 so what do you find there? Yeah, so um, in this paper, my co-author, Robert Gonzalez, and I um, look at the effects of this program on students' absences. So um, in some ways, uh, you know, absences are, and school absences are an interest of mine as someone who, who studies education policy, um, and so, um, we were interested in, um, whether, uh, having these civilian community monitors, so I just want to emphasize these are not police officers, these are, uh, civilian members of the community who have sort of basic training, um, but that work, um, as monitors or sort of a designated adult uh, yeah. presence, set of eyes while students are, tra are are walking, traveling to and from school. Um, and so we wanted to know if um, if this had effects on how frequently students attended school. So this is, I should say, companion work to some other work we've done um, that's published um, looking at the effects of this exact same program on crime rates in the vicinities, in the vicinity of public schools. And so what we found um, I think somewhat surprisingly to us, maybe this was not exactly what we expected when we started the project, was that um, this um, civilian presence uh, during, you know, students uh, travel to and from school has pretty substantial effects on crime rates in the vicinity of these schools. So in the in the local areas where these um, where these uh, monitors are working. So we, you know, in the paper, I think, do a, a careful job trying to um, you know, appropriately try to understand um, and design a, a research study that gives us some sense of, you know, how crime rates are declining in other unmonitored parts of the city. But uh, sort of abstracting from that, we do find that that this uh, community crime monitoring program has pretty substantial effects on crime. And so this absences paper, just to return to your initial question, um, was trying to understand if that sort of improved environment in the vicinity of schools yeah. Um, led students to miss school less frequently. So we're not able in the paper to exactly um, identify the mechanisms responsible, um, but we do find that absences decrease um, in schools where these where, when these monitors are present. Um, and, and so we think that has to do with sort of being in an environment where there's sort of less stress, less child, uh, less you know exposure potentially to crime um, in the neighborhood and that could be children's, being stressed about um, sort of the local environment or also parents being worried about sending their kids to and from school. And so we, we don't exactly know which of those factors is at play. We think it's likely both, um, yeah. but we find that this program has 
um, impacts on on how frequently students attend school, and we find that they they miss school less frequently when these monitors are yeah, in place. Yeah, uh, uh, I can understand this, Sarah. So when I was growing up in in South India, um, it's sort of a community involvement that you know you cannot engage in any misbehavior. I found that the news travel faster than light. I think Einstein is still wrong. Um, you know, my mom knew, uh, you know, if I engaged in bad behavior, not faster than the speed of light. And so it's sort of um, sort of the community civilian involvement, right? Yeah, in the process that makes a huge difference. Yeah, we think that could definitely be part of it. Um, knowing that there are, uh, you know, community members around you, supporting you as you're, you know, going to and from school. Um, we think that could potentially be at play as well. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You have another paper, Comprehensive Support and Student Success. Can out-of-school time make a difference? Um, so uh, out-of-time school, what do you mean by that? So, I mean, in this paper, I'm studying a program that is supporting students' academic, social, and personal development outside of the school day. Um, yeah. So providing um, academic and other types of enrichment activities, both after school and during the summer. Um, and in this particular paper, I was very fortunate to work with an organization in North Carolina um, that had used admissions lotteries, which is something that economists love because uh, it's, <laughs> it's kind of close to a, a randomized experiment. Um, but basically, uh, this organization was in circumstances where they had more students who wanted to be part of this program than they had spaces available. And so they used sort of like a lottery or, or random assignment mechanism to say, uh, you know, these students will be given the available spaces. Unfortunately, unfortunately, these students will not. And so in this paper, I'm able to track the outcomes um, of students uh, as they progress through middle school and early high school. Um, you know, comparing those that participated in this after school uh, and summer programming versus those that didn't, uh, trying to contribute to this question of how sort of supports outside of the school day can mm. help in particular students from low income backgrounds um, and, and sort of other disadvantaged circumstances who um, are, are um, you know, struggling in the in the public system as it is without these supports. Yeah, so sort of similar theme, right? So uh, some sort of outside support seems to have a lot of beneficial effect on outcomes. Yeah, so this is something, this is yeah. a larger theme in, in my research and is reflected in some of the work that I'm doing currently. I'm interested in sort of how all of these factors, whether they be supportive programs in the community, whether they be uh, a, you know, a community crime monitoring program, um, but also, you know, the um, the local environment, uh, whether you happen to live near a coal-fired power plant, for example, I'm really interested in how all these out-of-school factors affect yeah. what's happening with students um, as they progress in school. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating because, you know, it might be that the eventual outcome is more dependent on out-of-school factors mm. than in-school factors. Um, do you have a sense of that? Yeah, I think that's a really hard question for me to sort of like put a number on or try to quantify but um, in my work I am trying to understand or at least make the point and I'm, I'm not the first person to make this point that the out-of-school factors matter a lot um, and so the things that are happening in students lives um, outside of school um, 
have effects on their outcomes and their trajectories and sort of their um, the opportunities that they have as they progress through our system, our educational system. Yeah, so Emily, I want to finish up with one of your recent papers. Uh, does improved risk information increase the value of cholera prevention and analysis of uh, stated vaccine demand in slum areas of urban Bangladesh? Um, so, so you're sort of measuring what an individual in Bangladesh is willing to pay to avoid cholera, is that the way to think about it? Yeah, so in this paper, really what we're what my co-authors and I are, are trying to understand is kind of the, the relative valuations of treatment and prevention of cholera. Um, and so, so yes, you're absolutely right that we're interested in understanding, you know, what a household uh, or what a willing to pay to reduce their likelihood of uh, of of contracting cholera and we we do this by by measuring willingness to pay for cholera vaccination um, but we're also uh, looking to compare this to what households are are kind of actually paying when they do contract cholera um, and so we have uh, hospital administrative data um, on on kind of uh, 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 cholera admittance uh, and the the cost of illness of these cholera admittance, and so we're able to to kind of use this this approach to look at both you know willingness to pay your your stated willingness to pay for prevention versus your your actual payments for 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 treatments um, to to provide kind of a picture of what treatment and uh, uh, to to provide a picture of the the trade offs between cholera prevention and cholera treatment uh, within our our sample area. Is, is mortality rate sufficiently low that it wouldn't affect your observations? So we are mostly, you know, considering um, considering non uh, non fatal cholera yeah. incidents. Um, we certainly are considering that within the the kind of treatment side of things uh, uh, because we're we're looking at at kind of um, or sorry in in terms of prevention side of things because we're looking at at possible willingness to pay for prevention for for vaccination. Um, on the, the administrative side, the, the hospital records, we don't see uh, overly high rates of, um, of fatalities, uh, at least with the, the administrative records that we have. Um, that, that being said, you know, cholera is a, a, an endemic disease in, in Bangladesh and can be fatal, uh, particularly for, for young children who are particularly vulnerable to things like dehydration that result from uh, prolonged diarrheal disease. Um, and so, um, so it's certainly not the case that, that there aren't fatality concerns, um, but they, they don't play a huge role within our sample. Yeah, so, so you say that we estimate that the household uh, incurs costs approximately $10 per episode of cholera that requires medical treatment. Uh, but from a policy perspective, from the, from the perspective of the government of Bangladesh, um, there is huge productivity losses, not only for the individual, but for the entire family. This, this appears to be, at least on the surface, a no-brainer from, from a policy perspective, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, so so you're certainly right. We we do try to measure some of the productivity uh, costs associated with an episode of cholera, whether that is an adult who contracts cholera um, and therefore you know does have to miss work, or if if an adult needs to miss work uh, due to due to the need to 
uh, to care for an ill child. Um, so we do try to measure some of this within our cost of illness estimates. Um, although, you know, I, I will admit, and, and this study, as well as many others that try to do cost of illness estimates uh, using household survey data, uh, will also tell you that, that it can be quite challenging to get uh, highly, highly accurate measures of those productivity losses. So again, we kind of think about these as, as somewhat conservative estimates because uh, there's, there's some challenges with with recollections from kind of you know previous cholera incidents, um, but you're you're certainly right that that you know we would expect kind of the overall cost to economic productivity or or costs kind of at a, a higher than household aggregated level to really exceed what we're estimating here in terms of the the treatment costs. Um, and what's more, you know, cholera is an infectious disease, um, and so there are certainly some of those kind of public health externality costs um, that that we'd want to take into. To account. Um, and, and a third thing that, that we kind of don't measure at all here is, is the, you know, overall uh, welfare cost of, of being sick or having a sick child. Um, those pieces are, are kind of missing from this valuation as well. Um, and so, you know, we, we suggest uh, that the, the willingness to pay for cholera vaccination uh, is lower than the actual cost of illness that we see um, uh, as represented in the, the combination of household survey data and hospital administrative data. Um, however, you know, we suggest that, that this has to do with some of the perceptions of cholera vaccines in the area and the difficulty of, of actually getting cholera vaccines or potential mistrust in vaccination. Um, and so, so you know, this, this kind of relates to some of the broader conversations that, that we have both in the U.S. and in other contexts about, you know, vaccine hesitancy or, or concerns about various types of, of uh, kind of preventative measures that, that people might not feel comfortable with or, or know enough about. Um, and so it suggests that there's kind of space for, for policy to intervene here, right? To demonstrate the actual value of prevention uh, to, to encourage this type of preventive behavior. Right, right. So so in conclusion, uh, both of you, Sarah, namely, you know, uh, we, we talked a lot about uh, different uh, ideas uh, about policy interventions where things could get better uh, but at the end of the day, you know, um, even if we have the right answers, it doesn't feel like we can push that into policy realm, um, which seems to run um, on rules that we don't quite understand. So, so, so what is what is your general sense? Um, you know, some of the work that you're doing in public policy arena and economics. How do we make some of these ideas really become implementable in the policy layers? What can we do? Sarah, you want to go first? Uh, I think that's a really difficult question. Um, I mean, it's something that we're, you know, thinking about with respect to these specific papers, but also I'm sure Emily and I think about this with our work more, more broadly. Um, you know, it's not enough just to do research. These are ideas that then, you know, hopefully we want uh, to be acted upon. And um, I don't know, I'm, I, I feel like your characterization of sometimes the rules seem sort of hard to understand. I think that was kind of <laughs> paraphrasing what you said. Um, not entirely sure what the, what the right answer is, yeah, but yeah, um, yeah I, yeah, I feel like I actually uh, don't have a lot to say about, about that. No, issue. I, I don't think they have good answers. In... You know, I, I was just posing sort of a question for also for the general public. Yeah. 
do understand that, yeah, I mean, we go through a four-year election cycle, um, which is great, but um, there's there's a lot of information out there, you know, objective analytical information, but they don't get into the policy realm. You know, it seems to be sort of not not very transparent in that way. Emily, do you have an opinion on this? You know, I I think I I agree with Sarah, uh, and and I agree with you as well, Gil, on the, on the importance of this question. And I think you know I've seen this demonstrated uh, in in some successful and some unsuccessful ways. Um, so I I guess I have kind of two thoughts. Um, and one is is kind of the the overall engagement and involvement of policymakers uh, along the way. So we talked a bit about the the work that that my co-author and I did. Uh, on valuing um, local environmental development uh, or local environmental preservation in, in Nepal. As I mentioned, when we talked about that paper, I mentioned that this was part of a, a larger uh, uh, multi-year interdisciplinary effort to characterize you know, water resources, water access, water quality in Western Nepal. And as part of that project, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time with local policymakers, national policymakers, in Nepal, uh, in the Western region, in Kathmandu, uh, to really try to understand what types of outputs would be useful for them in developing uh, you know, their policies moving forward. And one part of that project uh, was to, to kind of help provide some of the inputs to be used in uh, the, the next 10-year plan for, for local irrigation, uh, or, sorry, or for national irrigation planning. Um, and so by incorporating kind of the, the policymakers at each stage of the research process, that project did, you know, successfully have some of these interactions that can be uh, uh, more challenging to come by. Um, and so that's one way, you know, that I think, uh, uh, you know, just being really intentional about including policymakers along the way, if if policymakers are interested and, and can allocate that time, um, it can be it can be uh, very fruitful. The other thing that I'll I'll just mention is that, you know, I think I think it's important for there to be outlets uh, for academics to share their uh, their findings and their their research. Right, that can be outlets just like this podcast, um, but it can also be outlets like you know respected blogs uh, or policy briefs or other types of kind of uh, uh, public facing outputs from and from other researchers that really are designed for the general public or designed for policymakers, because it can be challenging to wade through, you know, a, a long academic paper to get the, the main gist or the, the main policy output. So I think, you know, being intentional about that is really important uh, for, for thinking about the overall policy impact of your work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, this has been great, uh, Sarah and Emily. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.